You know, Donald Trump, he embarrasses us every single day. Trump told the working people of Iowa and Vermont and this country that he was going to stand with them. I know it will shock you when I tell you he lied. The president is not a white supremacist. I'm not sure how many times we have to say that. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. I guess if you look at what happened in New Zealand, perhaps that's a case. This president condemns hate and evil and bigotry, and we will continue to do so. People should feel safe in their places of worship. Hello from Los Angeles, California. I'm Leon Krause. Welcome to Trumpcast once again. Great to be with you. Let us begin, at least for a moment, in the world of fiction. The final season of Game of Thrones will begin in less than a month. It will be a reckoning, to be sure. As a big fan of the show, and I am a big fan of the show and the books as well, I hope its creators have the courage to end it in a fittingly tragic way. You might think I'm just being cruel, but think about it this way. Reality, actual reality, is a punishing thing. My problem with fantasy, and full disclosure, I've written a fantasy novel. I published a fantasy novel way back in 2005 that I'm still very proud of. The problem with fantasy is that its authors usually struggle to give the characters they create, we create, the tragic fate these characters would probably face in real life. Most fantasy authors just don't want to kill their darlings. J.K. Rowling didn't do it, and it made me very angry. Tolkien barely did it. In the world of the living, if odds are against you, chances are you will not find a happy ending. There are no miracles, there's no magic, sadly there's no dragons. So I hope that once Game of Thrones ends, we will have witnessed all of the characters confronting their fate, even if that means heartbreak for the audience. Which brings us back to another reckoning that's coming, and that in many ways is already here. Here, in the world of fact. There are some who have already faced their own reckoning, or a reckoning of sorts at least. Paul Manafort, Trump's own version of Littlefinger, is going to jail for seven and a half years. It should be only the beginning. There is little doubt that the Mueller report will upend America's political landscape. The question is how and by how much. But I think it's a safe bet to assume that even in its mildest form, the report will push the Democratic Party in Congress to finally confront the possibility of impeachment. What kind of reckoning will Donald Trump face when all is said and done? Some Democrats seem to think that Trump should face impeachment no matter what the famous report reveals. Are they right? Speaker Nancy Pelosi clearly doesn't seem to think so. In a recent interview, Pelosi put some distance between herself and the idea of Trump's impeachment. Why? Well, because she thinks that the real reckoning Trump should face, the one downfall that is worthy of this character, is a resounding electoral defeat in 2020. I don't disagree. Pelosi knows that if the Democratic candidate is to beat Trump, the president shouldn't be given any claim to martyrdom. Trump deserves a defeat that does not polarize the country further, but rather reinvigorates the democratic process. This is what Nancy Pelosi seems to think. It's a complicated and controversial position, to be sure, especially because Pelosi's party, which should be slowly aligning behind one common electoral objective, is in danger of drifting apart, of fracturing. We will talk about that very, very interesting topic when we return. And now, the tweets. 
just spoke to Mary Barra, CEO of General Motors about the Lordstown, Ohio plant. I am not happy that it is closed when everything else in our country is booming. I asked her to sell it or do something quickly. She blamed the UAW union. I don't care. I just want it open. Get that big, beautiful plant in Ohio open now. Close a plant in China or Mexico where you invested so heavily pre-Trump, but not in the USA. Bring jobs home. Bring back Judge Janine Pirro. The radical left Democrats working closely with their beloved partner, the fake news media, using every trick in the book to silence a majority of our country. They have all-out campaigns against Fox News hosts who are doing too well. Fox must stay strong and fight back with vigor. Stop working so hard on being politically correct which will only bring you down and continue to fight for our country. The losers all want what you have. Don't give it to them. Be strong and prosper. Be weak and die. Stay true to the people that got you there. Keep fighting for Tucker and fight hard for Judge Janine. Your competitors are jealous. They all want what you got. Number one. Don't hand it to them on a silver platter. They can't beat you. You can only beat yourself. Perry Bacon Jr. writes about government and elections for 538.com. He recently published an insightful piece about the different groups within the Democratic Party, a debate that will likely shape not only the future of the United States, but frankly, also the world. Perry, welcome to Trumpcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Perry, before we get to the Democrats, let me ask you about the Republicans. You began your recent piece by saying, and I quote, that a political reporter could write a Democrats divided or Republicans divided story virtually any day of any year. So let me begin by challenging that just a bit at the current political moment. Are Republicans truly as divided as Democrats? I don't think they're as divided. Well, actually, I'm not sure. I think both parties are pretty unified in a certain way. The Republicans are unified largely around Donald Trump. But you saw this national emergency vote where 12 Republicans voted against the Trump position. So you have some divisions on the Republican side. And then the Democrats have different factions, different wings of power. But I still think most Democrats, both in the electorate and in Congress, are pretty unified around the idea that they are opposed to Donald Trump. I think we have pretty unified parties broadly with some divisions in both. As things stand now, is there any chance you think that anyone within the Republican Party will challenge Trump's claim to the party's nomination in 2020? It depends on how you think of like a primary challenge. Will anyone actually formally run a campaign against Donald Trump? I think the odds that are low. But I do think uh, the governor of Maryland's name is Larry Hogan. He's going to New Hampshire next month. He's been to Iowa already. He's been writing op-eds criticizing Trump. He's already essentially running for or raising his hand to run against Trump. And I think if the polls show enough support or if the Mueller investigation has some really strong findings, 
I think Larry Hogan is basically already running a quiet, under-the-radar campaign against Trump. It don't, I think it'll only become a formal campaign if he can really see how he can win. But basically a, a symbolic opposition, at least for now. For now, I think Trump is likely to be uncontested, yes. So in any case, even if the Republicans have their own set of fractures, they pale in comparison to what we've seen within the Democratic Party. Could you run us through the six wings, as you call them, the six wings of the Democratic Party you recently wrote about? So what I described was what I called the sort of super progressives, which I put Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, probably the most notable person in that group. What we define, this is a sort of an informal ranking, but we were to sort of define them as people who are pretty liberal on what I'll call economic issues. So let's say Medicare for all but also pretty liberal on issues that are sort of non-directly economic. So like I use a proxy for that as sort of the people who favor abolishing ICE. So that's super progressives, abolish ICE, Medicare for all. We said kind of very progressives are people who are probably like left on the economic issues like Medicare for all, maybe not as left on the identity cultural issues. So I put Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in that bucket. We call the next group progressive, but not super or very. So the progressives, we said there's like a new guard of progressives who are liberal on those issues, but maybe not as liberal on economics or cultural issues. We gave Kamala Harris and Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams as among the examples of that. We then had a group we called old guard progressives, which is Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, And the thing we distinguished there was we were talking about the fact that those people are pretty left on the issues, too, but they're pretty focused on electability and the Democrats presenting themselves as acceptable to the middle of the country. And so that ends up making them less liberal sounding than other Democrats. And then we talked about the mm -hmm. moderate wing of the party, which we can identified as people who are in Congress, mainly in the House. A lot of the members elected in 2018, we said of moderates, people who are going to vote against the liberal wing and kind of are critical of the liberal wing. And there's a lot of new Democrats in that group. And then we finally said conservatives, which is like, I think the most prominent, I would argue, is sort of Joe Manchin of West Virginia, the senator, who is like hostile to abortion rights and pretty conservative on a number of different issues. And so those are the six blocks. Super progressives, very progressives, progressive old guard, progressive new guard, moderates, conservatives. Now, one of the central paradoxes facing the Democratic Party as it heads into 2020 is that the party's left wing, what you call these super progressives, are driving the conversation at the moment. All of a sudden, it seems like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has taken the role of sort of like a gatekeeper, at least when it comes to the younger generation, the younger vote. And yet, as you point out, and this is very interesting, there are actually very few elected officials who could be considered super progressive. So in a way, this still is a minority within the Democratic Party. Yes, I would argue the people who are sort of abolish ICE, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, that might be 10 members of the House. And maybe I don't think there's any senator I'd put in that group. I'm not sure there's any governor I'd put in the group as a Democrat. But that said, I think the important thing the left has going for it is it has a lot of aggressive policy ideas and a lot of energy. And so in some ways, the sort of more rightward parts of the Democratic Party don't have those really strong ideas. So a lot of times what you see is the more conservative part of the party says, that's unrealistic. We can't do that. That's not a particularly compelling message. That's not going to drive the argument. So you have one side saying 
climate change is an existential crisis and we have this big, bold plan to solve that. And the other side is saying, well, your plan is not realistic enough without necessarily having its own plan. So you have one wing of the party that's driving a lot of the ideas and one wing that's reacting a lot. And whenever you're reacting, you're often in a place where you're not leading the discussion. So it's 10 members of the House. It's a very small percentage of the Democratic majority. How strong is the super progressive clout within the party in reality? Is it an exaggeration, you think, to think of Ocasio-Cortez and her peers as kingmakers during the party's upcoming primary? Yeah, I don't think they're going to be kingmakers. I don't think that, you know, having 10 people endorse you will make that big of a difference. But would I rather have Alexandria Ocasio's and Cortez's endorsement or Chuck Schumer's endorsement? I'm not sure. And I think I might rather have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's endorsement than Chuck Schumer's, because I think that captures a lot of what's going on in the party right now, is I do think the young people, the activist wing can bring you fundraising, can bring enthusiasm for you. So I think there is some usefulness and some excitement to that wing of the party, even if most necessarily the voters are not really there. I've interviewed a couple of Democratic politicians in the last few weeks, and I've noticed they feel an obligation to either endorse the agenda of these super progressives you're describing, or they tiptoe around any sort of criticism of that platform. Given the undeniable impact that these super progressives have in social media and the news cycle as a whole, even if they are very few in numbers, do you think this could turn into a sort of a tyranny of the minority scenario within the Democratic Party? I mean, it's not like these House members are being held at gunpoint and being asked support the New Deal or, or New Deal or else. I think they have choices. I wouldn't use that framing. But I do think that they are feeling pressured. But again, that's in part because what I would argue is that the kind of Obama view of politics, which is that the Democrats should try to be toward the center and look to work with Republicans was basically invalidated by 2009 to 2016. The kind of let's have a centrist approach to climate change didn't convince any Republicans to come on board. So I'm not surprised that it's, there was a push for more liberal people to say, why don't we try a more left-wing approach because compromise is not working anyway. So I think that that is not surprising to me, but I think there's sort of a rejection of Obamaism, if not Obama mm -hmm. himself, that I think is really important here. Let me ask you about the man of the hour and probably the man of the last four years or the last three years, at least, Bernie Sanders, since Hillary Clinton lost the election. You think of Sanders as very progressive, a group that currently includes, by your own categorization, Elizabeth Warren and New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. There are those who say, beginning with Sanders himself, of course, that the party has actually moved to the left since 2016 and that the very progressives are now actually the mainstream, ideologically speaking, when it comes to the democratic agenda. Do you agree? I don't, because if you look at like right now, the Democrats control the House. They're not pushing Medicare for all. They're pushing basically keep the Affordable Care Act in place as is. They're not pushing these bullies. They're pushing like these sort of modest bills on gun control. They pushed a big voting rights bill, which is important, but not particularly bold in the Bernie Sanders mold. So, no, I think that the center of the party is, you know, because Nancy Pelosi is a speaker. Chuck Schumer is a Democratic leader. Those people still have a lot of power. And I would argue they are still the drivers of the Democratic Party on actual policy. 
if you look at most governors who actually, again, implement policy themselves, I don't think you have a lot of Bernie Sanders style governors either. So I just think that maybe I, in the sort of like narrative, Bernie Sanders has pushed the party left, but it's still not a Bernie Sanders party by any means. Perhaps the most interesting group in your six categories is what you call the progressive new guard that you described for us a few minutes ago. It includes people like Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and crucially now, since he announced his formal candidacy, Beto O'Rourke. This group faces a curious paradox, in my opinion. It might be the most numerous in Congress, but it also lacks its own narrative. What story are they going to tell in the election? What do people like Harris and O'Rourke actually stand for? Do we know? So I think this is tricky because I think that they are going to have a problem of what do they actually stand for. So what do they stand for? If you figure out what is Barack Obama's position on issue X, you probably know what Beto and Kamala Harris and Booker are for. They're pretty similar to him in terms of ideology. So they're like left of center, but not really like deeply progressive. I don't think I don't think there's a great mystery there. Like the story of saying that is going to be hard, though, because that makes it sound like you're basically the candidate of the democratic status quo. So it's hard to be kind of a like Beto and Harris and Booker are like these so they're sort of like these youngish dynamic people but I think their message does not project that I think that's going to be hard I would emphasize one thing about the people I put in that group is most of them are either pretty young themselves or they're women or they're non-white and I think that's important in part because I think part of their kind of liberalism will be a liberalism of culture I'm a fresh voice and I'm liberal because I'll appoint lots of a very diverse cabinet. I'm a diverse person myself in a certain way. I think part of their liberalism is a projection of who they are. Like Beto became famous for defending these NFL players who kneel during the national anthem. I think that's a form of liberalism that maybe is not the Bernie Sanders kind, but is a kind that I think responds to the Democratic Party, which I would argue has become liberal on racial and gender issues as much as on populist issues. Well, that sounds superficial in a way, no, not really substantial on policy. I think it depends on the issue, but I think in general, yes. I would make the case that I might think voters are at some point superficial, and my guess is some of the candidates think that too, and I think we might be right. Let me stay on this story question that I find fascinating. I actually think it's the central question for a Democratic Party in 2020, the question of narrative. The problem of a lack of convincing narrative seems even worse with this progressive old guard, which includes, again, crucially, the other man of the hour, or at least we expect he will become a man of the hour fairly soon, Joe Biden, Vice President Biden, currently the favorite to win the nomination, if you believe in very early polling. What story will Biden tell? Will the argument for a pre-Trump Obama golden years restoration be enough? Yeah, that's the argument. I think that's a pretty good argument. I mean, Trump is opposed by 55% of the electorate. So yeah, I actually think Biden's candidacy will be about very little other than him saying Donald Trump is kind of outlandish and crazy and I will bring things back to normal. And I don't think that's a bad message. I think that actually might be a pretty good message. And I think this brings us to what is perhaps the central question, Perry. What do you think will win in the end? I think it's early, of course, to maybe ask you this question, but I would like to know your opinion. The narrative of revolution from the super progressives or the story of restoration and moderation from people closer to the center? I think, and I'm not trying to cop out here, I actually think something in the middle is the way to go here. I think the candidate who was Barack Obama in 2008, was he a transformative candidate in terms like 
he was able to convince some voters he was, even though I would argue his actual public policy views were extremely close to Hillary Clinton's. And so my sense of it is that a candidate who's successful is going to be able to present a kind of new age, I'm revolutionary, I'm different message, while maybe not on the details embodying that. Like if I had to bet Sanders or Warren or the rest of the field, I would bet on the rest of the field. There are more people, obviously, in the rest of the field. But I also think that generic, I'm a Democrat, I'm not racist, I'm nice, restoration, I'll think about Medicare for all, but I'm not committed to that. I'll think about a wealth tax, but I'm not committed to that. I tend to think the Democratic electorate has a fairly large moderate group and a fairly large group that's not particularly ideologically moored. And I think Sanders and Warren are going to run into that pretty hard. And so I would not bet for them. Sanders could win, particularly because he has a strong base and there's a lot of candidates in the field. But it's hard for me if it gets down to two candidates seeing Sanders winning if he's facing the more generic Obamaized message from the other person. In 2016, with only three candidates, people remember two, but there were actually three candidates, the Democratic Party almost collapsed. I remember being at the convention. The convention was actually very stressful. And we now have close to 15 candidates. We might end up with close to 20 candidates on that stage, all of them quite large political personalities representing these six wings of the party that you have described for us today in Trumpcast. What are the chances, Perry, you think, of real fracture within the party? What are the chances that this very clearly divided party, or at least with so many choices, will end up fracturing in the prolonged fight for the nomination. I try to avoid predictions. I don't know how helpful predictions are. That said, you know, in 2016, the Republicans had a thousand candidates. The convention will be contested. And it really wasn't. I think what unifies today's parties is negative partisanship, meaning the Republicans at some point were like, we don't love Trump, but we really hate Hillary and we have lost twice in a row and we want to win. And so I tend to think that at some point the Democrats really hate Trump, really want to get rid of him. I think there's a lot of evidence that the party will be more accepting of Sanders if he won. I think a Harris or a Biden obviously is very acceptable to the party. So I tend to think this will be resolved. Like if Bernie Sanders won and he picks, let's say, Stacey Abrams as his vice president, I think that sort of papers over most of these divides. If you pick Joe Biden and he picks Elizabeth Warren, I think these divides are not that severe and will be addressed by the urgency Democrats feel about getting rid of Trump. Now, when you look at the country as a whole, and you do that very well, and 538.com specializes in this sort of analysis, when you look at the country as a whole, and you take into account that for most Democratic voters, what's most important is electability, someone who can actually beat Trump. When you put those two things together, what kind of candidate is the ideal candidate to actually face Donald Trump? Not ideologically, but who would have the actual best chance of beating Trump? Someone who can appeal to the Rust Belt and the Sun Belt. Is there such a person? You know, I'm not sure. You know, these people have not run for president before, so I'm nervous about predicting who is, because I think we're going to do a lot of like, you know, I think there's a lot of assumptions that white candidate X will do well. I think a lot of that is a little bit fraught. 
What we do know is of the people who voted for Barack Obama in 2012, but voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, you, there was some drop off from the people who voted for Obama to who voted for Clinton. So most people who voted for Obama voted for Clinton, but about 9% of the people who voted for Obama in 12 voted for Trump in 16. About 7% of the people who voted for Obama didn't vote at all in 2016, and about 3% voted for a third party who voted for Obama in 12, voted for either Gary Johnson or Jill Stein in 16. So you have a block of people who are sort of the Obama-Trump voters, and you can tell that's who, let's say, Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar might be aiming for. But you also have people who didn't vote at all, and those people are disproportionately Black and Latino. So you have a different potential case there. So you could see and I'm also not sure politics is dynamic. So I think the parties are changing in the sense that the white rural areas are becoming more Republican, but the suburban areas are becoming more Democratic. And I think there are very few swing voters, period. So, you know, I, no one agrees with me when I say this, but I tend to think Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Sherrod Brown, Better or Work will basically get the same voters to vote for and against them because they're Democrats. Young voters, as you know, have moved to the left in a striking fashion, actually, if you believe in recent polls. How important will they be during the Democratic primary? you think that uh, young voters will actually decide the Democratic primary this time around? Well, it depends on where they go. But I mean, what you saw in 2008 was like young voters, voters under 40, let's say, were a very big part of why Obama did well and why he was able to beat Hillary Clinton. In 16 the fact that young voters were so firmly behind Sanders was a big reason why that campaign was so close. So I think if you're looking at the Democratic Party, I mean, the, the, the groups I think everybody's watching are sort of what I would say is um, if I was going to divide the electorate into three groups, I would say I would watch for like white white voters who are over 45, white voters who are under 45, and then People of color, particularly African-Americans, are a big part of the electorate in some of the states in the South. So I would look in those three blocks and you could say under 45 was very strong for uh, whites under 45 was very strong for Bernie Sanders in 2016. So if he can keep that base, that's great. I think Beto is going to be very competitive there. Uh, whites over 45, the polling suggests that's a very strong group for Joe Biden, but right now, but I think he, he hasn't really, he hasn't run yet. So I think he'll be, uh, he'll face some challenges there. The African-American vote, I think is like an, an, is a wild card. I think the assumption is like Harris or Booker are black candidates. I think that's true, but uh, I think Joe Biden is doing very well in polling among black voters. I think Beto could be competitive. I think we have a lot of other candidates. So I think that these groups are important, and it's hard to say which group is most important without knowing sort of where the field breaks down. I think it's fair to say that in 2016, a long fight between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders ended up benefiting Donald Trump. All of us in the media thought that it was going to be the Republican Party who were going to have the longer, more difficult primary battle. But it, in the end, it turned out to be almost the exact opposite. The Democrats had a very complicated struggle even leading into the convention. Do you think the diversity and tension within the Democratic Party improves or decreases Trump's chances at re-election? 
You know, I might disagree with you. The The Democratic primary lasted very long in 2008, and Barack Obama had this huge victory. So I'm skeptical that the length of the primary necessarily tells us that much or the divisiveness of it, because I think the Democratic Party was pretty united around Clinton by the end. I think that most Republicans, a lot of swing voters chose Trump. So I'm not sure. Like, I guess, I, I'll, like I said, I tend to think that the key questions about the 2020 general election are these voters who either the sort of reluctant Trump voters who people who didn't like Hillary, didn't like Trump, and kind of decided, let me try something different this time. That's where I tend to think is the big battleground is I think this election is much more about, you know, the, the Democratic candidate will probably sound like a Democrat. And so in my so my sense of it is like the question is like these the people who voted for Trump last time, where are they now? How do they view him? Because the Democrats can be running basically no matter who they are as a sort of anti-Trump candidate. And that's going to be a big part of their message. And I'm curious to know where Trump is at 40 percent approval right now. But if you look at most polls, if he's polled against Bernie Sanders, it tends to be that Trump is at 45. So there's a certain number of voters who don't approve of Trump but are going to vote for him. And I'll be curious how big that number is. Well, it's going to be a fascinating marathon. Perry Bacon Jr. writes about government and elections for 538.com. Perry, thank you. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Please tell us what you think. I'm at Leon Krause, L-E-O-N-K-R-A-U-Z-E on Twitter and Instagram as well. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And one more thing, please, please sign up for Slate Plus. $35 for the first year gets you all of Slate's podcasts ad-free, an evolving roster of ever-enticing perks. And most importantly, you are supporting our tireless work Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Matt Hayden and Ileana Del Rio. John Di Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. You can find him on Twitter at, at JohnnyD23. I'm Leon Krause from Los Angeles, California. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>